Welcome back to this second lecture in this series that I am calling Seedology. For most of this lesson, we're going to be concentrating on the Abrahamic Covenant. A proper understanding of what the Bible says about the Abrahamic Covenant will not only give us a greater understanding of the Bible as a whole, how the Bible works, what the history of the Bible is, but it will also affect our eschatology and how human history is going to play out according to sovereign God's own design and plan. All of that is encompassed in the Abrahamic Covenant. But first, it's necessary to put a principle in place. A few years ago, Roger and I taught on the kingdom. He taught on the spiritual aspect of the biblical kingdom, and I taught on the physical aspects of the biblical kingdom. And my evidence of a physical kingdom to come, as predicted by all the prophets in the Old Testament, in no way negated or undermined Roger's teaching on the reality of the spiritual kingdom. Likewise, Roger's teaching on the spiritual kingdom and all of the evidence that he presented for the reality of the spiritual kingdom in no way undermined or negated anything I had taught about the physical kingdom. And it's a really important principle when reading the Bible to understand that there can be both literal, physical, and spiritual fulfillments and satisfactions of the promises of God. And that just because you can find a spiritual satisfaction of a promise of God, that does not negate the physical aspect of that very same promise. And that is a vital principle to understand when approaching the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant has both physical and spiritual promises within it. And those promises, both the spiritual and the physical promises, are passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's name, of course, is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. And as those physical and spiritual promises are passed down to his 12 sons, who are the 12 progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, for the first time you see a division between the physical and the spiritual promise. Now, I know that's a mouthful at this point, but the purpose of this particular lecture today is to demonstrate to you that that is exactly what the Bible says. That's an oftentimes neglected aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. But in order to understand God's plan to fulfill every aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, we have to see it in both its physical and its spiritual aspects, which have gone to two different tribes within Israel. And the Bible says that. The Bible says exactly that. It's not even something that is hidden away somewhere that we have to work away at and parse away at in order to get it to say what I just said, it's actually spelled out exactly. So let's begin in the book of Genesis, chapter 12. This is the first recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the first time that God speaks to Abraham and makes this promise with him. This is, by the way, an unconditional covenant. 
In the Bible, we find both conditional and unconditional promises from God. The difference between those is an unconditional covenant is made by God with God, and nothing that human beings can do can negate or change that covenant because it came directly from God. A conditional covenant is like the law of Moses, where God says, if you'll do these, then I'll bless you. If you don't do them, then I will curse you, scatter you, take you out of your land. So the promises inherent in the covenant are conditioned on the actions and behavior of the people with whom God has made that covenant. But both the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are both unconditional covenants, promises that God is going to accomplish by virtue of the fact that he is an unchanging, unlying God who can say, this is what I'm going to do, and then do it regardless of the actions or behavior of the people with whom he has made that covenant. So, all that to say, the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. We're going to see that right away as God forms the covenant. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall become a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So there it is, the fundamental, basic Abrahamic covenant. Now, granted, as it is passed down to the next couple generations of Abraham's descendants, God is going to add some details to it. But the fundamental basis of the Abrahamic covenant is twofold. The first part is promising him a land. You're going to go to a land which I am going to show you and I will make you a great nation, and I'll make your name great. Those are all very physical promises. Start walking. You're going to get to a land that you don't know. When you get there, I'll let you know. And everywhere that your foot touches, everywhere that your eye can see, I'm going to give you that land for you and your descendants in perpetuity. But then there is also a spiritual aspect to the Abrahamic covenant, which is I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all the families of the whole earth will be blessed through you. That is an indication that through your descendants, there is going to come a blessing that is not just going to be for your family, but actually for all the nations, all the families, all the tongues, all the tribes on the whole planet. That is a spiritual blessing that we know is satisfied in Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham who comes to the planet, who pays the ransom price, and who becomes truly and genuinely the biggest blessing that God has ever given to the residents of planet Earth. And that is a promise that is made in the Abrahamic covenant. And because it is an unconditional covenant, It reaches into the New Testament, into the New Covenant, 
and finds its satisfaction and fulfillment in the new covenant. So all that to say, remember these two basic categories. A physical promise of land and descendants, which God is going to expand on, and the spiritual promise that through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. A physical promise and a spiritual promise. Continuing to read in Genesis 12, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was there in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Very specific, very physical promise. This land of the Canaanites that you're standing in right now, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants. And then there is this very interesting story that makes up the balance of chapter 12, but it is also deeply involved in seedology. There was a famine in the land, so Abram goes down to Egypt looking for food, and while he's there, he realizes that his wife is a very attractive woman. And he realizes that when the Egyptians see her, they're going to desire her and may even kill him to get to her if they know that he is her husband. So he asks Sarai to lie and say that she's his sister. Now that may possibly be true in the broadest sense of who his sister is. They may come from the same family line, the same heritage. But go and tell them that you're my sister so that it will go well with me because of you and so that I may live on account of you, is what Abram says to her. So anyway, it comes about that the Egyptians did see that she was a beautiful woman and even Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh wanted to have a look at her. Buying the story that Abram was her brother, we're told that Pharaoh treated Abram real well and gave him oxen and donkeys and servants and camels because Abram was the brother of this woman that Pharaoh was trying to court. But then in verse 17 of the chapter, we find out that the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Abram's wife. So Pharaoh calls Abram and says to him, what is this thing that you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away and his wife and everything that belonged to him. Okay, so a couple of important things happen here. Number one, God made Abram even richer while he was down in Egypt. But secondarily, God purposefully 
made sure that Sarah could not be engaged sexually to another man because it was vitally important that the child that comes to Abraham and Sarah is a child of promise, a child who would otherwise be an impossible child, a miraculous child. And if at that point in her life she had had relations with Pharaoh and had she been impregnated, then the whole plan of God, his entire seedology, goes haywire. And so despite Abraham's lie, rather than allow a relationship to develop between Pharaoh and Sarai, God brought plagues to make it very obvious that he was displeased with this thing. And that kept Sarai true to Abram because Abram is a recipient of an unconditional covenant from God. It is he and his descendants who are going to inherit the land of Canaan, and it is through his seed that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And the beginning of the seed that leads to Christ is the first child, the miraculous child, the child of promise who comes to Abraham and Sarah. And that plan cannot be messed up even by a pharaoh. And that takes us to chapter 15, where we read the second recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. Starting in chapter 15, verse 1, this is after Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. By the way, I personally believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany. In other words, he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. I think the writer of Hebrews makes that case pretty convincingly. And of course, the implications of that are huge, that the high priesthood that Jesus has is a high priesthood that he himself began, because he himself is the only person. There's no human being, there's no sinful human who could be an eternal high priest on par with Jesus Christ. All the high priests of Israel came out of the tribe of Levi, but Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If he is a Christophany, then he began that high priesthood because he's the only one who can satisfy and fulfill and embody that perfect priesthood. If, by the way, Melchizedek is a Christophany, this is even more interesting because that means that once Abram heard the Abrahamic covenant and heard that he was going to get this land and heard that through him all the families of the earth were going to be blessed, the very next encounter that he has of any significance is with this Melchizedek, who, the writer of Hebrews argues, is much greater than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, blessed Abraham. So that means if Melchizedek is a Christophany, that once Abram heard the promise of God, it didn't start coming to its fruition until Abraham was blessed by Jesus Christ. Because we know in the New Testament that all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen, it would really be a remarkable bit of Old Testament history if, in fact, the promise from God of land and blessing to Abraham finds its surety in his encounter 
with Christ himself. I just threw that all in for free. That's what takes place just prior to this second recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house will be my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look at the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Paul picks that up, takes it into the New Testament to demonstrate that righteousness has always been a result of faith in what God has said. Paul points back to the faith of Abraham in order to say that he is the father of the faithful. By the way, the Hebrew word here that says he believed the Lord is the Hebrew word aman. In other words, Abram amend God. And because he believed, because he amend God, God then counted that to him, reckoned it to him as righteousness. It wasn't Abram's personal righteousness. It was a righteousness that was imputed to him in exchange for the faith that he had in what God had said. Okay, so what did God say? God said, you're going to have a descendant who comes out of your own body. It's not going to be this Eliezer of Damascus. It's going to be seed that I am going to give you, and he's going to inherit all the promises that I give to you. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Okay, there's the physical aspect of the promise. And by the way, I would also argue that you're going to have a son who is seed of your own body is also a very, very physical promise. Yes, as we continue in the story, it's going to have a very spiritual aspect to it because Sarah's going to be well beyond childbearing years and yet they're going to have this miraculous child of promise. So there is a spiritual aspect to it, but it is also a very physical promise. You're going to have a child through that child. Your seed, your descendants are going to be called. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And Abram said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. 
And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell on him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. We know, because we know the continuation of the story, that that's exactly what happened. The descendants of Abram end up, through famine again, going down to Egypt, and then they grow great in number in Egypt, and a pharaoh comes along who knows not Joseph, and so he puts them into slavery, and they serve there in Egypt for 400 years. What a surprise. That's exactly what God said was going to happen. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, which implies that the land of Canaan, which God is giving them, is actually theirs, their land. And you'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. If you know the book of Exodus, you know that God is referring here to the plagues that he is going to bring on Egypt, including the death of their firstborn and including drowning their army in the Red Sea. God said he was going to do that. I will also judge the nation that they will serve. Afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. That also happened because on the night that they left Egypt, God told them, go and borrow everything you can from your neighbors. And then that night, God delivered them and drowned their debtors. So that was a pretty good deal. But he did all that because God had already said that he was going to curse Egypt and deliver Israel, bring them back to this land that God was promising them. Okay, those are very physical promises. You're going to go into a land. You're going to go into slavery. But I'm also going to punish the people who enslave you, and you're going to come out with great substance. Verse 15, and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. More really, really interesting language. God is giving the Amorites, who live in the land of Canaan, another 400 years in order to build up and complete their rebellion against God. There's absolute sovereignty. And then once their iniquity reaches the full, God is going to bring the people out of Egypt, who have become this great mass of people, and bring them back to this very land, which God has just told Abram belongs to you and your descendants forever. And all of that is God answering the question, how will I know that I'm going to receive it? God predicts the next 400 years of Middle Eastern human history in order to answer the question, how will I know? And it came about when the sun had set and that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt 
as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite, all that land belongs to Abram now. However, during Abram's own lifetime, he dwelt in that land as a stranger, as a pilgrim, as a wanderer, which is one of the definitions of the word Hebrew, as a sojourner in the land of promise. And yet he believed it. That faith in the promise of God is even cited in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, in what is classically called the Heroes of Faith chapter. The faith of Abraham is demonstrated there by the fact that he lived in that land, though it was not his yet, but believed God for the promise, even though he wouldn't see it in his own lifetime. And I'll also point out that God said to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates, and to this moment in human history, right now, June of 2022, Israel has never possessed all of that land. And yet the Abrahamic covenant says that all of that land ultimately belongs to Israel. So what are we going to say about that? Are we going to say, well, God didn't know his geography? Or that he made a promise that he didn't intend to keep? Or do we have to say that this is all part of the ongoing eschatology of God in his dealings with Israel, and one day when he establishes the kingdom that Israel is going to possess the whole of that land because it was promised all the way back at Abraham. So even though God has yet to accomplish every physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, nevertheless, he has to and he's going to because he doesn't change and because he's a faithful God. So the Abrahamic covenant, my point is, the Abrahamic covenant is still to this very day being satisfied, being fulfilled, not only in its spiritual aspect in Christ, but there is a physical aspect of it that is still awaiting fulfillment. And faith in that fulfillment, believing what God has said, is the faith that gets us righteousness. And that takes us to chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, When Sarah, disappointed that she hadn't produced an heir yet, decides that Abram really ought to go into the tent with her Egyptian handmaid, a woman who goes by the name of Hagar. And sure enough, Abraham does go into the tent with Hagar and does produce a child. And then when Sarai sees that Hagar has conceived a child, Well, then she becomes angry, and the two women end up despising each other. And it gets so bad that eventually Hagar runs from the presence of Sarai. And then she's met by an angel by a spring of water, and the angel tells her to return to her mistress and submit to the authority of her mistress, but then reassures her and says, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, 
because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of his brothers, and to this very day in the Middle East, they continue to be wild people. And indeed, their hand is against everyone. It seems like everyone's hand is against them, just like God said. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael, just like God instructed. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. That takes us to chapter 17, the third recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. And I will be their God. Then starting at verse 9, God gives him the instruction about circumcision and circumcising every male that is in his household and every son that he has. Then starting at verse 18, God again recites another portion of the Abrahamic covenant and continues expanding on it. Because in verse 18, we read that Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before thee. In other words, I love my son. I've already produced a son. Why can't he be the one through whom the seed continues? But God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. This is vital to our understanding of seedology. The Abrahamic covenant is passed down to the particular people that God wants it passed to. You're going to have a child, a miraculous child, and the seed is going to continue through that child, not through Ishmael, even though Ishmael is the firstborn even though technically Ishmael should get all the rights of the firstborn. Nevertheless, God chooses the younger of the two and says that he is going to establish his covenant in the exact way that he's described it to Abraham. He's now going to give it to Isaac, the technically secondborn. 
but the only child that comes through Abraham and Sarah, who continues the seed. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become a father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham begins the whole circumcising thing. In chapter 18, we read that yet again Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Abraham was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, lifted up his eyes, and behold, there were three men standing opposite him. He got them some water and some bread, and also took a tender and choice calf and had it prepared for these men. They then say to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, she's in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. That's a really vital point that Sarah could not have naturally produced an heir for Abraham to keep that seed going. It was going to take a miracle. It was going to take the intervention of God in order to accomplish the seed that was promised. Meanwhile, in verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also... And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah, meanwhile, denied it. Said, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Oh, but you did laugh. And that's why the child is born Isaac, or laughter. Starting in verse 17, then, is the fifth recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and a mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? There it is again, the physical and the spiritual promise. God is very aware of both aspects, the physical and the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. And God summarizes it that way, that he's going to become a great and mighty nation, very physical, going to inhabit this land, very physical. But in him, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, very spiritual. Why is all that going to be? Verse 19 tells us, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham 
what he has spoken about him. And the balance of that chapter and chapter 19 is about Sodom and Gomorrah, which we won't go into at this point. Chapter 21 starts, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Wasn't that lucky? And Abraham called the name of his son, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne him a son in my old age. And that child grew, and he was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Chapter 22 then tells us the story that I assume you're familiar with, that Abraham was told then to kill his son. And interestingly, God refers to Isaac as his firstborn son, just completely discounts Ishmael. The child of promise in God's reckoning is the firstborn child. And Abraham dutifully does what God said and has the fire and has the sticks and lays his son down and raises the knife and is about to sacrifice him. But chapter 22, verse 11 tells us, But an angel of the Lord said to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Substitutionary atonement. Abraham found a ram with his head in thorns and used him as a substitute for his son. What a perfect and remarkable type of Christ here in the book of Genesis. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and begins the sixth recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba. Chapter 23 Sarah dies and is buried. Chapter 24, they go looking for a bride for Isaac. 
Isaac, of course, ends up with Rebecca. In chapter 25, we're told about Abraham's death. And then starting at verse 12 of chapter 25, we get into genealogies again, tracing first the seed of Ishmael, but then the sons of Isaac. Interestingly, we're told here in chapter 25 that Isaac also ends up praying to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren and the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So even his offspring was a result of God's personal intervention. And you know the story. She had twins in her womb. And in fact, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. There's God again doing this older shall serve the younger thing. God showing preference to the younger child, to the second born. And in fact, we're going to see that he moves the Abrahamic covenant from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, even though Jacob is not the firstborn and does not have the right of inheritance of the firstborn. The twins, as you know, Jacob and Esau, just don't get along. And through a bit of chicanery, through a bit of deception, Jacob, along with his mother, managed to get the birthright blessing from Isaac when he's too old to see So as a consequence, according to chapter 27, verse 27, Isaac kissed Jacob, so he blessed him and he said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. Many peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. What did he just do? He just handed down the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. So did God agree with that? I mean, after all, God did tell Rebekah, you've got twins in your womb, and the older is going to serve the younger. And then, through chicanery, through deception, Isaac actually blessed and gave the Abrahamic covenant birthright blessing to the younger son, to Jacob. But the real question is, is God in this? Is God part of this chicanery or is God going to disagree with what they have done? Well, that takes us to chapter 28. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and he lay down in that place. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants 
shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than Bethel. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So what happened there? God recited the elements of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. And the spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So what is the whole point of today's lecture? It's to demonstrate that God, in his divine seedology, is making very sure which way the seed goes. He is creating the lineage and the genealogy leading up to Christ. And he's not letting anything or anyone interfere with it. He is miraculously producing children and opening wombs. He is sovereignly keeping pharaohs from interfering in the process of producing the offspring, the progeny for Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant itself is recited to Abraham and then passed down very specifically to Isaac and then passed down to Jacob. And even though there was lying and chicanery in order for Jacob to end up with that promise, it was God's intention for it to go that way from the very beginning because he did say to Rebekah that the older is going to serve the younger. It's really astounding sovereignty. But it is also a demonstration that God is in charge of who gets born and to whom they are born and what the seed is and what the genealogy is And he is very, very specific in producing this direct line from Abraham all the way to Christ. Next time, we will take a look at how Jacob distributes the physical and the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant to his 12 sons. And along the way, we're going to see that sinners, people that God chooses, sinners sin. And sometimes, even in their sin, they end up accomplishing the continuation of God's sovereign seedology. So, I'll see you next time.